See, family, guests, and friends, we are in Revelation chapter 6. The stuff of some Hollywood and movies and misquotes and misrepresentations, confusion, perhaps even consternation, because it can be so confusing. No doubt I will leave some of you disappointed because I didn't cover the fine detail of this, that, or the other. I also have to pick my spots and recognize I don't know everything at the same time. So please be gracious with me. Uh, but let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom and grace as we approach this uh, tremendous passage. Father, we do need wisdom and grace. And on the one side, sometimes, Lord, we need to be checked in our, um, in our hearts when we feel like we have such a firm grasp on things that there are no other correct interpretations. On the other hand, we can hold it so loosely and think that it doesn't really require us to study it because there's so much disagreement. Who cares? We do care because it's your word. So help us to move through this passage not only with clarity to understand what it says, but with the grace to live out what it says, which is the point. Prepare us for every good work from this passage today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't turned there already, please do turn to the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible. Uh, As they say, last but not least, but certainly a book that is uh, full of imagery, symbols that require work to interpret, and it doesn't make it easy. And so, of course, we have strains of Christianity and denominations, even within denominations, various interpretations. And another complexity is that, you know, in a setting like this, we've got some who have studied the book of Revelation. You've got the charts and the maps and you've, you know, you've leaned into this and you have a somewhat of a good grasp, at least, on it. And some of you, the only thing you know about the book of Revelation is some Hollywood movie you saw, um, you know, uh, who knows what was going on in, in some of the movies that we've seen. Even Christian movies uh, oftentimes, I think, give us false lenses with which to read the book of Revelation. But let me start by, by helping you see the relevance of this passage, okay? Because it's not just for nerds of apocalyptic literature. This is the stuff of life. And what I'm reminded of when I read especially a chapter like this is as believers, this is written to believers. This is for the churches. We saw that right off the bat in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. We sometimes, I think, and myself included, we walk around this world with all its suffering and all of the diseases and rampant war and terrorism and school shootings and death and accidents and all the stuff that is the stuff of depression, right, and anger. And, and when we're asked about it as Christians, oftentimes we're like, I don't know, the Bible doesn't have answers, you know, the Bible doesn't really say. But that, that's not right, that's not true. You know, there's a part of us that wants to say, well, God is up there like, hey, you guys are doing this to yourselves. But that's not right either. Some of us might have a part of us where we go, well, that earthquake was because they did that sin, and that school shooting was because they removed prayer from there. What about the school down the street that, didn't, that removed prayer, right? So to, to, to measure it with that exact, um, I don't know, measure of finger pointing to say every single bad thing that happens, we can point it to the exact bad thing that prompted it, that, that doesn't seem to work either. So on the one hand, you can fall off the, the cliff on this side where God is not in control. God is not sovereign. He's just up there like, hey, you guys are just doing this to yourselves. I'm just, waiting. I'm just waiting to send Jesus back. But for now, everything is sort of detached from my doing. That is scripturally an error. It is also erroneous of us to act like prophets, to finger point and say every single disaster, we can point to the exact specific sin. Instead, I think we need to help people understand they ask the wrong question. They ask, why this particular bit of suffering? We should be asking, why any bit of grace at all for anyone? 
Why aren't all the schools shot up? Why aren't all the countries experiencing an earthquake right now? Why isn't everybody in complete famine and poverty? That's the real question. And that will get, that's what gets uncomfortable because now we have to talk about sin and trespasses and iniquity. Why the body of Christ had to be shattered in the first place. It wasn't for them out there. It's for everybody. Man, woman, child, beast, creation, nature, trees. Everything is under this weight of curse because of sin. So the world should be destroyed as God did with the great flood. And the only reason why it's not happening again and again and again on a worldwide everybody dies scale is because of God's grace. But we aren't to tell people that's not God. God's not, God is not, he'll, he'll come back in control. But in this in-between time, God's not in control. That's, that's not what scripture communicates. That's not only a truth we find in Revelation, but Revelation screams it loudly. And what we're going to find, especially in Revelation chapter 6, is that Jesus, the one who was the one who is the one who has the right to open the scroll. Remember that from chapter 5. John sees this vision, here's a scroll. It's important because this is God's doing in the world. What God are you going to do in this world? What are you going to do about evil? What are you going to do about wickedness? Do you just let it go? Are you the parent that looks the other way while the kids being abused? Or are you a good father? I think inside that scroll is the answer that he's a good father, but how is he going to be a good father? And what's he going to roll out? What's he going to do with this world? But no one can open the scroll except the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ. He has the right and the authority to open the scroll, not to just read it. Oh, that's what it says, but to roll it out, pun intended, okay? To take the contents of the scroll and start ushering it in, to start doling it out to the world. Jesus has the right to do that. And it's no surprise to you. It shouldn't be any surprise to you that what is this scroll in the book of Revelation if not God's judgment on a wicked world that oppresses his people and rises up in rejection against him. So Jesus, here's the point of Revelation 6. You can write this down and the rest of our time we're trying to, I'm trying to prove that, explain that. The point of Revelation 6 is that Jesus has secured the right to bring tribulations, plural, small t, Jesus has secured the right to bring tribulations upon the world leading to his final act of wrath. Jesus has secured the right to unleash many tribulations upon this world that will culminate and climax in a final day of wrathful judgment. You might go, man, is that supposed to be good news? For some of us it is. For others of us it's not. And we'll get to that in a minute. But if reading a passage like this puts a lump in your throat, it should. This isn't, this isn't meant to be a joke. This isn't satire. This is a message to the churches from a prophet seeing a vision. Jesus tells them, write this down and tell this to the churches. We're charged in the opening section of the letter that we are supposed to study this read this in order to be blessed so don't be afraid of it let's work with the symbols let's recognize that there are various positions on certain things but we can get down to the truth that jesus has secured this right he's the only one to do it he's the only one that's able to do it to bring tribulations upon the world leading in a final act of wrath so as we begin We begin with that in mind. He's the slain lamb from chapter 5, verse 6, and then right here in verse 1, who through his death and sacrifice, that's why he's the slain lamb, he's the one that secured this right to do this. I'm going to read chapter 6 straight through, and then we'll back up. I want to offer a few clarifications to help us see what's happening, and then we'll unpack the details briefly and wrap it up. That sounds like a really long time. It might be. I don't know. Hopefully you had breakfast. It'll be all right. Let's read it straight through, verses 1 through 17, and then some clarifications. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, 
and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands, and I heard, that, I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? I think you can sense and even feel not hopefully just the way I read it, but the words themselves, you can feel the weight of this passage. It's heavy with the theme of judgment, pain, death, longing for hope. And we're given this for a reason. It's to set our sight on Jesus as the only one who is able to unleash these horses and unleash these um, tribulations on the earth. Let me, let me give us three points of clarification to help us here, okay? Because as we move through the book of Revelation, I've, I've got to try to find out where do I just take a time out and, and just help us read the book of Revelation. You know what I mean? Okay, so uh, I, I think at certain points it's helpful to have some interpretational guidelines so that as you move through his visions, you can kind of see what it's saying. And one of the reasons why that's so important uh, two reasons. One is because apocalyptic literature is very foreign to us. Second, the ways in which it's been made familiar to us, I think, have been botched and mishandled by many teachers. And so we get locked in, this has to mean this. And if a preacher says, no, I don't think it means that, it's like, well, liberal. <laughs> no, not, not liberal, okay? Careful, I hope. Three clarifications. One, the reason why I say that these are tribulations that climax in the future is because I think these are tribulations that happen between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. I'm going I'm to unpack that and why that's important. And maybe in three minutes you go, whoa, that's definitely not what I've believed. That's okay. There are three different positions. There are more than three, but just for, for simplicity's sake, three different ways to read the book of Revelation. One of them is called the preterist view. It's just the person who believes that all of this stuff happened in John's future, but our past. Does that make sense? Let's say this is the timeline. John is writing right here where this mic stand is. I'm going to knock it over for Ben. This is where John is writing. Here's timeline. Here's where we are. And John is looking to his future right here, 
But as we're reading it, we're reading about the past. Everything was Nero. If it says earthquake, oh yeah, that was what happened in AD whatever. Uh, when it talks about conquerors, rulers, kings, oh, it's those kings, the Roman guys, okay? It's our past, but John's future. I don't think that's right. It's possible, but I don't think that's right. There's another view that takes all of it as our future. So they see some things that are back there, but most of it is right here. Everything. The horses are going to come later. There will be an earthquake later. Wars and rumors of wars later, right? And when this happens, then Jesus comes. Have, have you heard this, right? Okay, we're just biding our time, evangelizing, getting people saved. And at some point in the future, in our future, at some point, suddenly there's going to be these seals opening up, trumpets are opening up, bowls are being poured out, and then Jesus comes and ushers in the final thing. And I'm not taking that position. I think the position that makes the most sense, and my prerogative as preacher, I'm not going to preach all three positions up here, I think the position that makes the most sense is that when Jesus ascended, okay, the judgments and the tribulations that Revelation describes begin rolling out in escalating fashion until the final day. Until the final day. Has it ever... I mean, I grew up in a church that was... I remember going to a church that had on the table in the foyer 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1988. I think he had a follow-up sequel in 1989, didn't he? I forget the guy's name. And I was just like, as a kid, I was like, what? The idea is, if all of this stuff is future, when the first seal opens, there's the sign. We're in the first seal, and you can start calculating because they take all the days literally, three days for this and weeks for that, and they can start calculating when it's going to finally come in Jesus' ultimate return. And as you think about that, every time you're here of a war, this is how insular we are as people. We're like, oh, there's a war breaking out in the Middle East. What seal are we in? Which one says war? Oh, wait, where are we on the timeline then? Isn't that how many of us have been trained to read the book of Revelation? Haven't you ever had that little voice in the back of your head that's like, but we were already in a war. Your parents asked the same question. Their parents asked the same question. You remember the great war? Which war was the great war to end all wars? Which was it? Okay, and then what did we have? Another war to end all wars, right? So what is your option to just go, you know what, the book of Revelation is just, it's like Nostradamus stuff. You can kind of read into it uh, what you want and make it sound like it's predictive, but it's really not predictive because it's too general and the things that it says is going to happen don't really happen. But if they're not predictive of what's going to happen in the final actual couple years, but instead indicative of what happens in the church age as the church expands across the globe, what is, going, what is the earth going to look like, culminating and finally climaxing in the end, then every time there's a war, every time there's a famine, every time there's a pestilence, we go, yeah, that's Revelation 6. That's the horses riding around doing their job happening. And we don't have to say, well, that's happening over there. Oh, but not yet. It has to happen here first. Uh, I, I think that backs us into a corner, and it's frustrating. And maybe you've been like me where it's so frustrating, you don't even want to study the book of Revelation anymore. I want to divest you of that, give you another option that I think is better to read Revelation as showing the whole picture. When did things kick off? When he became the lamb that was slain. Not some random year when Henry Kissinger is in office. Some of y'all are way too young for that reference. I'm almost too. Rather, the, the lamb who is able to open the scroll is able to open it when he becomes the slain but resurrected lamb. So there's the first time marker. 
And when does he open the scroll? In John's day. He opened the scroll by virtue of gaining the authority. He gained the authority by virtue of his death and resurrection. That's when it started. And when does he come back? When he comes riding the horse and, uh, and puts everything down, as we'll see in later chapters. And we get a peak view here in seal number six. Everything in between, it, it's escalating. It's escalating. The church is growing, though. No matter what we experience, the church is growing. And actually, the church grows best, it seems, in places in the world where there are more tribulations. Comfort chokes out Christian growth. So as we look at these uh, seals being opened up, I don't think we're seeing them as uh, something that is way in the future. We don't have to worry about it right now unless it starts tomorrow. I also don't think we're supposed to read it as something that happened in, you know, the first century A.D., and we're just reading a, a book about the past. Another clarification I think is really helpful for us is that we need to allow visions to operate within the category of ideas, not strict chronological physical manifestations. Uh, so again, when I talked about angels, you know, don't necessarily have the face of an ox. Uh, how many wings do angels mathematically have? I think we're missing the point. I'm not saying when I say that angels don't exist. I'm just saying the Father doesn't have a right hand. Jesus doesn't actually look like a lamb. Does he? Does Jesus walk around looking like a lamb? For eternity, we're going to worship the lamb, looking like a lamb with seven eyes on it and seven horns on it. And somehow this lamb has the dexterity to grab a scroll. It's just pushing the imagery too far. It's too literal. And now we're, we're constraining the text in ways that don't allow us to see what it's telling us to see. I'm not saying this isn't about reality. It is about reality, but through imagery that is loose. It, it's communicating certain things, but it's loose with regard to pinning it down to literal uh, things. So I think we need to look at this for the literature that it is. We have symbols like horses, weird colors, swords, scales, a black sun, a red moon. They communicate ideas, not checking the, uh, I don't know, that you're near it, checking out uh, astrology and astronomy books from your nearest library and trying to figure out when the moon might actually look like that next. And going, it's got to be that day. You'll end up in the camp of those who try to pin it down to a specific time, and that we're told not to do that. Someone told me, and I hope this might be helpful to you. I mentioned to, mentioned it to some of you earlier this week. Someone, and this was helpful for me, but someone told me that the, the Book of Revelation, when when it's communicating John's visions, it's like a political cartoon, stylized, but not literal means something literal pointing to something literal but the drawing itself you're not like that's not the shape of biden's head (laughs) what a terrible artist right let me give you a pop quiz if you're reading the newspaper and you open up to a political cartoon and you see a donkey in there with stars and stripes on it what is that democrats okay What if you see an elephant with star and stripes on it? Republicans. Okay, now what if you see an old dude with a white goatee and a top hat that has stars and stripes on it, a little grumpy, a little skinny, Uncle Sam. Now here's two layers. Who in the world is Uncle Sam? Where'd the name Sam come from? Probably most of us don't even know. Why is he uncle? Why isn't he dad? But we know Uncle Sam is what? Okay, so we understand donkey, we understand elephant, we understand skinny dude with a white goatee and a top hat, with specifically with the stars and stripes on it, just so we know he's not like Colonel Sanders wearing a hat or something. What if you saw an eagle, I'm just making this up, you see an eagle with, in his right claw, I guess, the, he's holding the donkey, and in the other claw he's holding the elephant, and it's soaring upward. Just an, I just made that up. That's not an actual political cartoon, I don't think. But what might that communicate? An eagle is holding both of those animals and then soaring up. Okay, freedom. Okay, why, why these two animals? What might that be? 
What's that? Okay, both. So both parties are in this freedom thing. We're, we're, we're coming from different angles, but what, here's what we're, we're trying to gain. We're trying to live out the purpose of our country represented by the eagle. Now, how many of you have a degree in political cartoon? You don't have a degree. You just grew up in a culture where certain symbols mean certain things. That's what John is communicating. So when he shows an ox or when he shows scales or when he talks about a denarius and we're like, huh? It's, it's familiar to his people. But they're images. We're not going, now, why is the donkey bigger than the, than the elephant? That doesn't make any sense. Elephants are this big and donkeys are that big. And in the cartoon, they're the same size. Who does that? Maybe some of you do that. That You're completely, like the political cartoon is going like this, Right? So we approach the book of Revelation recognizing these are visions. These are visions. And visions communicate through symbols. Third clarification quickly. Uh, This sort of return, maybe I should have folded this into the first one, so it's not really that different than the first one. But uh, I think we need to understand that these are signs of the end, but we're in the end. Now you might go, but how can we be in the end if it's been this long? The end is a long period. It just is. The end started with Christ's ascension, and he said, I'll be back. In between him going up and coming back, these are the end days. This is, the, this is where the gospel gets taken to the four corners of the earth. The church expands, and while the church expands, the earth increases in its wickedness. And... Um, one of the main problems with taking this in a chronological order, if you noticed, and we're just unpacking it in a second, but if you noticed Jesus' climactic final day of wrath where he comes and just puts wickedness down and they're hiding in the mountains and they're, they wish that the mountains will fall down and crush them because at least that would be better than facing the direct wrath of God himself. That's seal number six. We're not even in seal number seven yet. So you might think, well, seal number seven must be the peace that ensues after number six. Since number six, that's it. Everyone's judged. The wicked are gathered together. The kings and the generals. Didn't you read the text with me? The kings, the generals, the, the, the powerful, the rich. Well, what about the weak people, the small people, the slave, the free? Everybody cowers in those hills in front of God as he comes and exacts his final day of wrath. Then you open up number seven which won't be today because seal number seven is not in chapter six. It's not even in chapter seven. Some things transpire. We have to see some things first. But then you go into the trumpets, and that's problematic to say first seal number one has to open, then seal number two. Not until seal number one and two, those first two horses are riding around, not until those two are riding around do we get number three, and then four, and then five, then six. And then somehow we go back when we do the trumpets to more judgments and things. That doesn't really make sense. It does make sense if these aren't chronological events that happen. It does make sense if they're symbolic of the life of the Christian on earth awaiting the return of their Savior. We don't have to push it farther than that. You don't have to match it up to today's newspaper You don't have to figure out what some country around the world is up to in order to understand what John is communicating in Revelation chapter 6. Let's try to, with a moderate pace, walk through uh, the symbols and then we'll wrap it up with what this has to do with us and how we can live this out. Each of the seals communicates ways in which our world, even now, experiences tangible manifestations of God's coming wrath. That's why I don't say this is the great tribulation. I think Revelation talks about this in terms of tribulation's pearl. We saw that the the churches, and the, the seven letters of the seven churches, they were already experiencing tribulations. That word was actually used. And that's, that's just a perhaps a churchy word for suffering and trials and difficulties in life. Tribulation could be anything. We see various versions of tribulations here. So each of these seals opens up uh, through symbols communicating to us 
these various kinds of manifestation of God of Christ's coming wrath. It's not the final wrath yet. It's not the final thing yet, but they're previews. They're like the trailers, almost the teasers, okay, leading up to it. And they are rolled out uh, kind of on leashes, you know, not, not full-blown because we're not ready for full-blown yet. Full-blown will be the end of the world as we know it. It's going to be in spurts and waves. It ebbs and it flows. We'll see that in a moment. But these are various tangible, actual, physical, literal experiences of what is being symbolized here. We open up with the Lamb who's the only one able to open the scrolls. The seven seals that close the scroll are being opened up in succession. But that doesn't mean that these things happen in chronological succession, like day one, day two, or whatever. The four living creatures that we saw in the, in the vision in chapter 5, this is the same vision, actually, they call out the first four seals with the horses that are with, the, with their riders. Verse 2 describes a white horse. The rider has a bow. A crown is given to him. He comes out conquering and to conquer. Do you see the levels there? Conquering, but still more to conquer. This isn't the final thing yet. It's rolling out. It's happening, and it's still going to happen. And the conquering there is the tribulations that God rolls out on the earth. Okay, it's not separate from that. It is that. That's why it's important to not defend the, the, the atrocities that happen in the world over here in this position. Go, God is like up there like, hey, hey. No, he's sending horses out. Make no mistake. God knows what he's doing. So this rider, some think it is Jesus Christ because he's got the white horse and he's wearing a crown. Some say, well, it can't be Jesus because Jesus is the one sending them out. Uh, you know, later we see that Jesus rides a white horse, but he doesn't have a bow, he has a sword, he has seven crowns, not one crown. It's either Jesus or someone Jesus sends. Is it that big of a difference? This horse is executing what Jesus is authorized to unleash. So there's no real big difference there. But it's pretty vague. It's introducing the seals by saying all of this is about uh, how God, through Christ, is conquering the world. Verse 3, the second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Okay? This is war. This is fighting. These are tribal wars. This is guerrilla warfare. This is terrorism. This is people killing other people. And as this rider is going out, all this happens in various ways, but I don't think we're waiting for the year. Maybe in 2023 is when people will start killing one another. It's happening now. It's been happening since John's day. It continues to happen. And while all the world is scurrying to try to make peace through diplomacy, and bring democracy to countries that don't have it yet. And all the ways in which we try to do it without Christ will always fail. And there will never be full global peace until Christ has fully ushered in his throne. But God isn't up there going, oh, the world is terrible, I know, just hang in there. He's rolling the horses out. And it's through his wise judgment that the earth experiences tribulations through war. That doesn't mean God incites the war. We are peaceful human beings and God steps in and touches our soft, innocent hearts and makes them crooked so that we want to kill each other. All God has to do is pull back his grace and that's exactly what we do, is kill each other. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked... And behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seems to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So this horse is in charge of the economy. Okay? And if you've ever shopped for produce, and you wonder how much that bunch of bananas weighs before you get to the cash register, and you throw it on that little metal scale to see what it's going to cost, and then you multiply it by how much is being charged per pound, you understand that 
uh, scales and currency and food, you put those three things together, you're talking about what's going on in the economy. And uh, your study Bibles, maybe you even have a footnote there, might say that a denarius would have been a day's wage. So imagine working all day long and you get a check at the end of the day or you get your bag of money at the end of the day and you've got to spend that entire bag of money on just one quart of wheat. One quart. How do you feed a family? Okay, times are going to be tough, it's saying. There's going to be recessions. That's what it's saying. Not to look for the one recession. Oh, was it the last one? Oh, is it this one coming? Yes, 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 yes. They, climb, they, they, they stack and they increase and they spread and they multiply as the rider, so to speak, goes throughout. And we're not supposed to ask, is the rider in this country today? Where's the rider going to head tomorrow? Because it's not a physical, literal rider running around. This is symbolizing the kind of difficulties the earth is going to experience with regard to uh, food. But you notice that there's a leash. You can hurt the wheat and you can hurt the barley, but don't hurt the oil and the wine. So in other words, we'll be able to sustain each other, right? You'll still be able to use your vehicles, but you're going to really pay at the pump. That's the kind of uh, angle that we get there because this isn't the final thing. This isn't, you know, everything completely wiped out, everyone's dead. That's not time for that yet. This is going to happen in spurts and in waves. The fourth seal, verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, or uh, the color there is uh, used in the Greek of those who have a, they look sick or look like they're dying, kind of a, maybe a, more of like a palish green uh, when you look really sick. A pale horse and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Death is what you experience at the end of life, and then Hades is the grave. Hades is the place, death is the gate, so to speak. It's the, Hades is the holding place for, it's the afterlife. So, this pale horse comes and is basically what we might call the grim reaper. Touching people and they die. Hades followed him because that's where they get sent when they get touched. Now notice it says, and they, who are they? All four horses. All four horses. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth. That's why I say it was, it's restrained. If it was the whole earth, everybody would be dead. But they, they have so much rain. Okay? They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, when you think of wild beasts of the earth, I don't know about you, but I read that, I'm like, okay, I get pestilence and war and famine, I get all that, but wild beasts, I was even trying to think just back then, were they just walking around and you were coming home from the market and you got jumped by a lion? Well, yes, you remember even way back in Samson's day, he's just going to get his wife and gets attacked by a lion. That could be it, but there are also ways in which people feed people to wild beasts. Specifically, when you're reading the book of Revelation and you're dealing with Rome and how Rome would persecute certain people, not least of which uh, in their history was the persecution of Christians, you remember Christians were fed to wild beasts. So John is going to take a little bit of a turn here and say the first four horses represent Tribulation for everybody. Everybody gets these tribulations. Christians aren't immune to it because we have to pay at the pump too. You know, it, it, we, we have to deal with the currency issues and the recessions and all that just like everybody else does. It's not like COVID didn't touch Christians, right? We, we're lumped in with everything. If our country is getting judged, we're, getting, we're, we're in it. Not that CFC is specifically getting judged, but CFC is in a country, and if the country is getting judged, it's getting judged. Was COVID a specific judgment? I think it's, a, a, we can say, a blanket statement across the board that diseases, pestilences are not outside of God's control. God wasn't surprised by COVID. And COVID doesn't even hold a candle. It doesn't even hold a, a candle to what these first century readers would have read when they saw pestilence there, or even when you look around the world, even recent history, the kind of diseases that we've had to deal with. So, the first four horses are everybody. 
And then that last phrase, wild beasts, might make the first century reader think, oh, man, we're getting hauled off, right? Look at verse 9. This is specific for believers. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Some of them were eaten by beasts, perhaps. Some of them were crucified. Some of them were torn in two. Those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they were told to shut up. They didn't shut up. They were told to stop preaching and I'll let you live, and they continued to preach. So remember when we, I mentioned Polycarp earlier where he was told, just say Caesar is Lord, deny Christ. He didn't. They burned him alive. After threatening with beasts, and he was like, beast, meh, all right, we'll burn you then. So you've got that imagery close to home with the original readers. They're thinking of the martyrs that have gone ahead. This seal gives us kind of an insight into where they are now, so to speak. And they are crying to the Lord for vengeance. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, Oh, sovereign Lord, not weak, wimpy Lord, not Lord who's out of control. You are in control, so why don't you wrap this up? Why don't you just bring in the final thing in the end? We're getting killed out there. Your church is getting killed out there. We were killed, separated from our families. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. The white robe representing the fact that they are cleansed in Christ Jesus. And they're told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long will the world get worse? And how long will the father tolerate the murder of his own children as his churches expand across the globe? God has a number, this many, and that's the final count. Has he shared that number? No. But he has a number, meaning he's waiting for a specific moment in time not in the background as a sort of helpless background player they're right to call him sovereign lord and he does see what's happening and he only lets so many pestilences and so much economic depression and so many diseases and so much persecution of his church until a certain number is reached and then christ returns it is not appended to a particular politician It's not appended to a disease that's so bad that this has to be the seal now that we're talking about. It's appended to a specific number of martyrs. And when that number is up, he wraps things up as they're requesting. So we wait along with the saints. Wait a little longer. And just be concerned with the white robe. That's all you have to be concerned about. Will you make it? Verse 12, when you open the sixth seal, this is the last seal we'll look at. Seal number seven gets punted. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars from the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I don't have a real long time to unpack each piece of image. What is sackcloth? Why is, this, why is the, the sun black? Why is this, the moon this color? Let me just divest you of the notion that we're waiting for the cosmological, physical truth that the sun is going to actually look like that and the moon is going to actually look like that. And I just want to just take 20 seconds to hopefully kind of at least pose that to you as plausible. What would it look like for 13 to be literal? And the stars, plural, of the sky fell to the earth? How big is a star? Pick one. How big is a star and put it next to the earth? How do plural stars fall into the earth like little figs from a tree? Well, we have to 
I don't know. Let me go to the Creation Museum, and I'll call you next week. Like, how do we figure that one out? I don't think we're supposed to go, oh, when, when, this, when the aurora lights are happening, that might cloud this, and then this happens. Perhaps the earthquake was so big that the dust goes up, and the dust makes the sun black. You can't see it. Well, how do we see the sun then? Well, because it's on this side, and the sun's on this side. Good for you, man. You know, blessings on you. I I think we're missing it, though. Throughout Scripture, this kind of language, this apocalyptic imagery is used for for God stepping in for his final say-so on something, Uh, especially appended to the the phenomenon of earthquakes. You see it in the the prophets uh, throughout the Old Testament. And so what John is saying here is there will be a time where it's not a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a fourth of this, some of this, there's going to be a time where everything is upside down. The mountains, the islands, the big stuff, the little stuff, the big people, the little people, and everything in between. The sun, the the moon, the stars, all of it is all over. Perhaps maybe even communicating the end of time. How do you measure time? As he set in the opening chapters of Genesis, he put the lights there for us to measure time, right? We'll forget that now because time is over. There's a possibility. We don't have to really press it much beyond that. But this is promising that there will be a time. So the previous seal, the saints ask how long. He doesn't tell them how long. He just says, when I have that final martyr. But that number is mine alone to know, implied, right? But then the next seal shows, and this is what will happen when that final martyr is in. The final wrath of God rolled out on mankind and on this earth. I know that many of us look at a passage like this and our hearts bleed for those who aren't in. We think of our spouses, maybe, our kids, our next-door neighbors, our extended family, our co-workers who don't know the Lord yet. And we're like, oh, we might be tempted to pray the opposite. Lord, much longer, please, because they're not in yet. But the book of Revelation is not written to people who are going, God, can you just take a little longer? Oftentimes it's out of our comfort that we can go, yeah, I haven't even hit my retirement plan yet. I haven't bought that boat yet. (laughs) This is written to people who are suffering, suffering. Imagine you didn't know going to church on a Sunday morning if you'd be back that evening or if you'd get hauled off and executed. You don't know, but you go anyway because you don't want to give up on Christ. You don't want to bow the knee to a government. And so you go anyway. Is that stressful? Some of us are stressed because we know Monday morning we got a lot of emails to open up. They're dying. Is it right for Christians who are suffering, grieved with the wickedness in this world, another school shooting, another famine, another disease, more people wiped out, more death, more murder, another war, another terrorism attack? Is it right for Christians to go, God, will you please step in and rescue your church? Yes, it's right. You can't pray the book of Revelation unless you get that perspective. That doesn't mean you don't care for your neighbor. Communicate to your neighbor now. Stop punting it. Don't communicate to your neighbor in retirement someday. Because even though some schools of thought would say, hey, Christ's return is imminent any moment, I really think it's any moment because I'm not waiting for seal number one to open up. Does that make sense? I'm not waiting. Well, we haven't been in, I think we're in seal three, but I don't think seal four has happened yet, so... Once that kicks in, then we should really get serious. If it's truly any moment, Christ's return any moment, it's because these seals aren't happening in order. We're all experiencing it all the time. And this morning, right now, some Christian in Nigeria might get killed, and that's the last one. So if our hearts bleed for our neighbors, our response is not to ask God for more time. Our response is to get to work now with the day that you know that you have. And then together with the saints and the Old Testament saints who would sing in their gatherings 
imprecatory psalms, psalms that ask God specifically to bring his anger on the wicked. We join with that not because we're, we, we want people to die. We, we join with God's righteous indignation that evil must be put down and that the United States military forces aren't the world's answers. As blessed as we are by that force. The answer is in Jesus Christ coming and being the true king, that he finally rides his white horse, wearing his crowns, wielding his sword, puts down wickedness, and brings relief to his suffering saints. If you're in here this morning and you're on the outside and you're hearing something like this, you're tempted to disbelieve it. But if there's something lurking in your heart going, I think there's truth to this, but I'm not ready. This is scary to me, not hopeful to me. You can cross over. You can come. And through faith in Jesus Christ as the one who took death for you, so you don't have to take death in the mountains, cowering like these wicked people in the end, Jesus takes the death for you and then becomes your refuge. So that now it's not just that you're not afraid of the end, you're hopeful for the end. You're longing for the end together with these martyred saints. You're longing that Jesus would come and reign fully. In the meantime, we live in a world full of tribulations. And when people ask you about them, don't apologize. Don't say you don't know. Take them to Revelation 6 perhaps and help them understand that there's two ways this is all going to end up. With the lamb as your enemy or with the lamb as your king. And then invite them to the latter. Let's pray. Father, we read this with hearts that are weighed down with the evils, the many evils in this world. They are plenty. And we don't want to ignore them. We don't want to sort of anesthetize ourselves with material things or vacation time or just busy ourselves with work, maybe on the other side, but want to recognize that we should grapple with these realities. For those of us who are in Christ, Lord, give us uh, the incentive to reach out to those who are not in the ark and are in danger of the flood. And for those who are in danger of the flood, Lord, maybe even here right now today, would you grant them the grace to ask someone, how do I get in? And when we bring them clarity, offer them hope, in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that that conquering lamb can conquer for us and with us if we repent and believe. As we close in the song, Lord, bring those truths into our hearts and give us grace to live it out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just stand and we'll close in this song.